This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you, Jim. What an amazing film! <laughs> yeah, it really is. It's, uh, I, I'm st- I've never seen it on a screen quite as good as this. It's a beautiful screen. And it's, it's a magnificent film. Mark was cackling at the end. <laughs> With pleasure. So I was struck this time by how um, sort of wild and weird it is at moments. Uh, so it's this kind of, um, I don't know, controlled, slow burn uh, of a film. And then suddenly it erupts, right? So you have that sort of cacophony after the, uh, uh, after the uh, play within the play, right? Uh, and then at the end you have that long, extended, tense duel scene and then suddenly Hamlet is leaping onto Claudius. Like we have these sort of wild eruptions of action. Yeah, Hamlet, he, Olivier plays Hamlet with a lassitude through, through so much of that, that movie. Uh, he's doing the melancholy Dane. And, and he's also, I mean, there's a, a Freudian reading here maybe we'll get to, but he's doing that. We'll get to it. And, and we'll get to it. And then all of a sudden, uh, that last moment, he goes up the balcony, which, I mean, it's, it's, it's Olivier's invention, and then he leaps 14 feet. And it's a 14-foot it's a leap, and it actually, Olivier did it himself. Everybody, everybody, everybody told him, do not do that leap. <laughs> uh, you get a double to do a leap like that. You could really hurt yourself you could really be out of it for the rest of the film. Uh, and he insisted, he was a very physical actor, he insisted on doing the leap himself, and they convinced him to shoot it, the last shot of the, of the, of the actual shooting. In case he hurt himself, they'd still have a film at the end. <laughs> the Claudius, on the other hand, got a double. <laughs> uh, that's, that's, a, that's a stand-in. And the Claudius double got knocked unconscious <laughs> in the league. Uh, Olivier made it okay. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> which, which is amazing. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a cute little bit about the film, but it's, a, it's astonishing that he, he actually did it. Yeah, and so that wild moment is... Of, of course, completely controlled. They waited till the last minute so they could get that, capture that. That's, that's yeah. fantastic. That, that kind of limpness that then gets, gets contrast. Well, that, 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 um, the, the way you describe the yeah. sort of um, staging of that final moment brings us to Olivier as the director, uh, directing himself in this role. Um, now, this series is you know, Shakespeare in film, and I think it will be difficult uh, to come up with a more influential figure than Olivier when talking about Shakespeare in film. And this period, this sort of moment in time, he, you know, there's about a, t- um, he, he does three uh, Shakespeare adaptations that not, he not only stars in, but, but directs and produces uh, in a space of about, what, 10 or 11 years? It's about that. It's about that. The first, the, uh, the first of them is, is Henry V, which I think it's 1944. It's the end of World War II. And if you've seen that movie, it's totally different from, from, from this, his, his conception. It's, it's shot outside. Uh, I, it is heroic. It's, the, uh, it's filled with action. Um, it's got wonderful wide-field battle scenes, and it's in color. 
No, uh, and of course, it's 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 celebrating in the end of World War II, or close to the end, when Britain, England, really needed some celebration. <laughs> uh, it's it's celebrating things then. Then he flips around, uh, and he does this Hamlet in black and white, not in color. Uh, it's all almost all interiors. Mm-hmm. It's the uh, empty, claustrophobic, echoing, very few, very few people around mm-hmm. set uh, in the castle. And so it, it contrasts totally uh, with the, 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 the Henry V and his look. He, you know, he was a physical actor. And uh, he, he made himself... He, he, he said it at one point in a, in a, in a biography that he works from the, the, the outside in. Mm. Uh, and also that he has, to, he has to be in makeup or in a costume to have a character. So here he, he makes himself blonde. Olivier wasn't blonde. Uh, he makes himself blonde. And so he makes himself into something he's not, a kind of Danish prince. Uh, then, if you think of his the third, the the great three that he that he does and directs, produces too, I think himself is Richard III, which comes after this. And if if you know the Richard III, if you don't run, do not walk, <laughs> see the Richard III. Now, uh, he's physically completely different. Uh, he plays it with he, he's made himself a false nose. You know, uh, he plays it. Uh, almost like a vampire with a great black costume, uh, uh, and he creates for himself a voice uh, uh, that's very thin, very nasal, very high. He often creates different voices, and, and it's a very thin nasal voice that, uh, when asked, I think he said he, he modeled it on a country vicar. <laughs> His father actually was a country vicar. Yeah. <laughs> he modeled it on a country vicar, high and prissy, mm. and that's that's his Richard the Three. Those those three that he uh, acts in, produces, directs, uh, and William Walton does the music on all three of them. And this is this is Walton uh, as well. Uh, those three are are a brilliant little body of work. And as but, you say, so incredibly different from each other, as if he's trying to sort of one-up, one-up himself each time. Yes, yeah. Um, so here, coming off of the 44 World War II, Henry V, that is so heroic and colorful, a cast of thousands, as you say, we get this mood piece almost. The Walton score sort of yeah. um, adds that. almost feels like a, a Bernard Herrmann score or something. It has that kind of... Um, could we talk about this, um, this film as film? Uh, you, t- you were talking about the sort of physicality of Olivier in the performance, his sort of nimbleness here. I, the, I was thinking as I was watching it that the camera's nimbleness the, kind of echoes yeah, him. The camera's almost character yeah. in, in this. The way the camera, it starts in the, before the film proper starts, the way the camera moves and moves around this castle. You can't, 
Uh, you, you can't map the castle, by the way. It, it does not rationalize. <laughs> People have tried to do that. It, 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 it does not work. There is, there, there, is no, there is no there there. It's not really a castle. Uh, uh, and the camera moving up and down stairs, moving up to the, uh, to the tower, uh, moving around and stopping repeatedly and suggestively <laughs> at that big canopied bed. <laughs> you know, in the opening sequence, you get the camera coming around and coming down, and you see that bed uh, uh, way off in the distance, and you come up on the bed, and at the end again, uh, you come to the bed. Well, the bed, the bed, <laughs> the bed. We're going to talk about this bed. <laughs> the bed, yeah. We're, the bed is going to figure. <laughs> but so we have this kind of, um, this mood piece, as you say, the camera moving in and out. You've described it as sort of uh, taking on the qualities of sort of film noir. So 40s, we have things like... Yeah. Um, uh, the Maltese Falcon, 41, yeah. uh, The Big Sleep a little bit later. And then this, 48, sort of um, adopting some of those um, uh, you know, practices and motifs. Uh, so what, what is he doing with film noir on this? Yeah, uh, well, he's, I think he's using it in part, uh, for, well, in large part for mood. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, here he, he wants to establish this mysterious mood uh, and I mean uses some of the the techniques some of the techniques include the voiceover right. include the way I don't know if you notice that the film actually starts with Hamlet in, on the bier being carried to the top of the tower and then at the end, we're going to get Hamlet on the beer carried to the dead Hamlet carried on the beer to the top. So of the whole the, thing is a retrospective. So, so it makes it makes it makes yeah. the whole film, in effect, in some sense, a flashback, yeah. and that's 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 film noiry, uh, as of course are the 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 voiceover and here the, the the voiceover, particularly in the soliloquies. Where the way Olivier does it with voiceover, and then uh, every once in a while speaking out loud as if he can't contain himself, he bursts out with it. All of this is is in this this this, this film noir kind of tradition. You know, if if this if this movie comes from or alludes to or evokes film noir. Uh, um, the Richard Three, which is the the next big one that he does, actually has has something of the horror movie genre mm. behind it. That one's in color, uh, and that has a couple of moments in it that I mean, Richard himself is uh, kind of like a Dracula figure mm-hmm. uh, in it, and it has it has one moment where one of the little princes. Uh, says something about your hump, a- and you watch Richard's face go green. Literally, they, 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 they turn it green, and Walton's music goes bang. <laughs> uh, and it's 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 horror movie stuff, is Satan. what it is. <laughs> Satan, yeah, uh, it's horror movie stuff. Um. So not only is he sort of, you know, sort of one-upping himself each time and doing something completely different, but sort of occupying different genres that are 
popular at the time in film. Sure. So he's, you know, sort of creating an audience for Shakespeare by sort of uh, uh, making these hybrids, right? Horror movie slash Richard III, film noir slash Hamlet. Um, let's go back to that voiceover. We begin, so we not only have the frame of um, this retrospective narration, this, the whole thing oh. is a flashback, but we also begin with that, um, the, the voiceover giving us that speech, you know, so, so off to chances in particular. <laughs> Ending with that non-Shakespearean line, uh, this is the tragedy <laughs> of a man who could not make up his mind. Um, what is Olivia up to here? <laughs> well, in the first place, that, that, that this is the story of a man who could not make up his mind. That line uh, uh, Olivier picked up from, uh, I, f- I forget whose movie it, uh, it is before, but it appears in... So it's a quote as well. It, it's, in effect, a quote from something like Cary Grant movie. It's not Cary Grant. Uh, it, it's a, it's, it's a, a Hollywood movie that used that line, oh, do you know about Hamlet? Yeah, it's a story about a man who could not make up his mind. <laughs> and Olivier picks that up. Uh, and uses it as a, a sort of epigraph. He also he picks up that um, the uh, uh, the the speech that that he uses as voiceover for the beginning, which will come up again. That's actually the mole of nature speech uh, in the in Shakespeare's play. In the play, that does not refer to. Hamlet at all. That's Hamlet speaking, and it's Hamlet speaking when Claudius is carousing. Uh, I, and what Olivier, and Olivier uses it for Claudius carousing. Again, he uses the, the speech twice, but pulling it out and putting it as a epigraph, as it were, to the, the movie. Uh, I, the mole of nature, the secret fault, the thing that's wrong, becomes the thing that's wrong with Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the thing that's wrong with Hamlet is also the thing in, in this movie. Uh, I, is, I don't know what, if anything, is wrong with Hamlet. <laughs> the thing, I, don't, I never met the man. <laughs> the, thing, the thing that's wrong with Hamlet in this movie is also related to that bed right. that you see. Right. Uh, and uh, there's, there's, a history, there's a history behind this. Well, let's, let's get, so this is a very particular <laughs> yeah. adaptation of Hamlet. It's a very particular adaptation. And a hugely influential one. Can, can, let's, let's talk about that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well... To talk about that, you have to talk where the concept of this version of Hamlet comes from in the first place. And you also have to talk then what Olivier does uh, about it, uh, how, he, how he changes, cuts the script and changes the script. Where it comes from, uh, I, it comes from, the, for a start, it comes from the production that Olivier did with Tyrone Guthrie directing at the Old Vic Theater, almost a decade, I don't remember the exact year, but it's almost a decade before this movie. They did a a production uh, of Hamlet, and in order to work out that production, they thought, let's let's make 
the relationship between, this is uh, collaboratively between Guthrie and, and Olivier, let's make the relationship between uh, Hamlet and Gertrude be the core of the, of the play. And they had heard of uh, Ernest Jones. Ernest Jones was a British psychiatrist who also who was a disciple of Freud's and biographer of Freud. And early, about 1910, I think, uh, Jones had written a scholarly essay about Hamlet and the Oedipus complex. And in, in fact, I think that, that Freudian scholars, even today, would say that, that, that Freud was more thinking of Hamlet when he was developing the idea of the Oedipus complex than he was thinking of Oedipus. Uh, in any case, Jones, uh, picking up on what Freud says about Hamlet, developed an essay, ah, I can explain the mystery of Hamlet. And the mystery of Hamlet is that uh, Hamlet uh, really uh, wants to marry his mother, do what Claudius has done. Therefore, uh, Hamlet, since he wants to do exactly what secretly wants, subconsciously wants to do what Claudius has done, uh, Hamlet um, cannot kill Claudius. Uh, is, uh, is constrained from killing Claudius because to kill Claudius would be, in a sense, to kill himself. Uh, uh, and that's the, that's, that's, that's the nugget. They went and they interviewed Ernest Jones, uh, thought, this is, this, is, this is a great idea for a production of Hamlet, and, and they produced Hamlet at the Old Vic that way. Then in this movie, coming to it some years later, I... Uh, Olivier turns it into into a visual poem. It's 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 a visual edible poem, is what it is. And it's still, I, you know, I, yeah. I've heard people laughing uh, at the sort of long kiss at the beginning. <laughs> really, uh, it's really striking how um, intent they are on pushing this particular um, reading in this film. And it was hugely influential. You know, um, the the obviously that the when we think of the Freudian reading, we we think that we assume that it's sort of, you know has been as influential as it has been since, since Freud wrote The Interpretation of Dreams. I always tell my students, no. go back to those three pages in Interpretation of Dreams. Yeah. It's fantastic literary criticism, whatever you think of the Oedipal Complex. But in fact, you know, this film as much as anything... Yeah, this is what popularizes it. Yeah. It's this film. And Ernest Jones, I mean, if, if, if you want... The Ernest Jones book, uh, Hamlet and Oedipus, uh, is, is available in paperback <laughs> now. I... Uh, and the Ernest Jones book was published the year after Olivier's movie. It, uh, clearly what he did, not clearly what he did, he did take his scholarly essay, expand it into a book, and capitalized on the movie. <laughs> As, and that one-two punch. I yeah. mean, the, 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 the film coming out, winning the Academy Award, being as hugely successful and yeah. popular as it was, Jones coming out with his book the following year, that, and that, that this version of Hamlet um, sort of has you know, dominated reception ever since. Well, no. In, <laughs> yeah, but but, but it, 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 was certainly, it certainly promotes the, the Freudian reading of Hamlet, and you get it, I mean, it, it, 
yes. It, it, uh, when I teach Hamlet, one of the first things that I have to do... To deal with it. Uh, ...is deal with it. And what I do is, I, in teaching it, I, I, I historicize it, um, which we could do uh, for a moment, but actually what I'm thinking of is the, the Zeffirelli Hamlet uh, that comes a few years later with Glenn Close and... Uh, Mel Gibson. And Mel Gibson, yeah. Uh, turned is almost a parody <laughs> of what goes on here. If you know, if you know that that movie, it's not a very good movie. <laughs> uh, Mel Gibson makes a better Hamlet than you might have thought, <laughs> but not, nonetheless, it's not a, not really a very good movie, and uh, it's almost it, it's almost embarrassing. The interaction be it is embarrassing, not almost the interaction between Gibson and and Glenn Close and. Uh, in that movie, particularly in the Queen's Closet scene, <laughs> when he's be- Gibson gets on top of Glenn Close <laughs> and starts berating her, <laughs> and uh, actually, when I when I teach this, and when I do teach it, one of the first things that I like to do is evoke the Freudian reading in order to historicize it and, and, and o- open it up. And I often show a clip from the, uh, the, the Zeffirelli and almost always the class will break out in laughter right. when, when you get that. And, that, and that, that's, that's, that's helpful because that, that, that tends to... Kill it. Well, <laughs> yeah, it does. It, it kills it. It's not, not so much that it kills it. It denaturalizes it. Right. It means this is not what... Uh, Hamlet must be about and the only thing that Hamlet must be about. And then you want to historicize where that thing comes from. It doesn't only come from Ernest Jones. It doesn't only come from Freud. Uh, It comes... uh, Something like this reading has a a considerable cultural history because it goes at least back to Goethe and the romantic readings of Hamlet at the end of the 18th and start of the 19th century, when you get Goethe saying Hamlet is a soul too noble Mm. to do such a thing as commit an act of revenge, and you get Coleridge picking up Goethe and expanding on it and his lectures on Shakespeare and talking about... uh, Hamlet being having an excess of mentality about him and therefore being unable to act. And uh, Coleridge says rather proudly, These, the, the, this Coleridge stuff is, he lectured on Shakespeare. He was a professional Shakespeare lecturer of Coleridge. He made, made his living for a time lecturing on Shakespeare, very popular lectures. And he always liked to say, I think I have a smack of Hamlet about myself. <laughs> of course he did. <laughs> yeah. uh, so those, the Goethe and the Coleridge and the romantic reading about Hamlet, the man who thinks too much, uh, that morphs into and mm-hmm. blends into this kind of Freudian reading. And the Freudian reading then gets a kind of visualization in this wonderful Olivier movie 
in the mystery of the camera tracking. I mean, the camera, as I said, is a character there, and it's tracking through this castle, looking for the what is at the heart of things. And the thing it comes back to, again and again, is that bed. So we move from you know what we might think of as a, a tragedy about this particular set of circumstances when we get to the romantics as a tragedy about character. It's all about Hamlet. And in a way, this film is kind of the apotheosis of that version of things in that not only do we get the Freudian reading, which is a version of the romantic reading, uh, but much of the play is cut away oh, yeah. uh, so that it is only almost a character study. Um, so the film was controversial uh, to a certain extent because of the Freudian reading, but also yeah. controversial because of the cuts. It cuts so much. The cuts are enormous. Uh, there's a whole political dimension to the script that uh, just is gone from here. Um, there are characters that are related to the political dimension. Most important, Fortinbras. Uh, it's Fortinbras who ends the play in, the, in, in, in Shakespeare's script. Uh, Fortinbras is gone from here. The play star, other character, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, gone. Uh, the gravedigger is reduced to one. There are a pair of gravediggers in, uh, in the script. Uh, um, the, now, uh, the play has a, an opening that starts with Horatio's description of a single combat between King Fortinbras and King Hamlet uh, in the way past. Actually, we learn in the course, we learn from the gravedigger, and that line is kept in the movie, that when did that, uh, that that occurred the same day that Hamlet was born. So Hamlet is associated with that. Well, a single combat between the king of Norway and the king of Denmark over some contested lands. It's a combat, this is a a phrase from the speech, well ratified by law and chivalry. Chivalry is important in this context. But it is a legal single combat, and on the outcome of that single combat between two kings hung the fortunes of the country, the fortunes of a territory. Play starts with a single combat described in the past. It ends with another, in a sense, single combat, Hamlet and Laertes, in that duel where the single combat at the start of the play is well ratified by law and chivalry, is open and apparent and formal. The combat between Hamlet and Laertes is with poisoned foils, poisoned swords, with a poisoned cup in the background. It's all subterfuge. It's not open. It is... uh, it is insidious. It's a corrupt Renaissance court, is what it is, as opposed to the heroic, chivalric past, King Hamlet, King Fortinbras, 
in combat in the past. And much of in Shakespeare's play, these, these, these echoing moments, the duel at the end and the, the duel described from the past, are um, that the book ends of the play, and they kind of establish the two poles within which the play operates. All of, that's, all of that stuff, that's, that's, all, that's all gone here. I mean, that, that whole dimension is gone. And I, because it relates to the way Olivier is, is, is retelling it as a, as a domestic fable in its way, rather than a, a political fable. It's making it intimate and personal. And in doing that also, that relates to the, the vacancy of the scene. There aren't many actors. There aren't the, the the biggest the biggest scene is the in terms of actors is the, is the scene where the actors come in in a large troupe. That's the biggest scene in the, in the movie. And another thing that, that he cuts he, he cuts the play within the play. Uh, uh, it's not there. It's turned into a little pantomime here. Now, uh, of course, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a play with, with language and all that's significant in, in the Shakespeare. I'm not saying that, I'm not at all saying that uh, he is desecrating Shakespeare. I, that's not my way of thinking right. of things. Uh, but he's certainly, he's taking this difficult, long, in some ways crazy play uh, and he's he's remaking it, and he, he's doing it brilliantly. Yeah, yeah. We you know losing the Denmark Norway conflict, we lose a sort of entire political realm. We lose a sort of social aspect to the play. Losing Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, we lose yeah. a kind of social aspect of the play. Hamlet interacting with th- people he thought he were his friends but become his betrayers. There's a way in which it becomes more and more claustrophobic as, char- as it's reduced, as it becomes this kind of minimalist, as you yeah. say, sort of uh, fable, um, that he's sort of more and more alone at the center of this court that is always corrupt. If we don't have a kind of falling off, is that the case that this, the... the, the Court in the world here are from the beginning corrupt. Uh, I, the world that we see yeah. there is from the beginning corrupt. Uh, uh, you don't. You don't have. I mean, in 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 Shakespeare's play, you you have that speech, that Horatio speech, uh, describing the single combat. It's a long set speech. It's a long speech, and it comes right at the opening. And it establishes a point of departure for for the whole play. So taking that out, you've got a different world. Yeah, with this kind of minimalist version of Hamlet, we get the supporting players become very important as they're deployed. Yeah. Could, we, could you talk a little bit about um, some of these other, um, the figures surrounding Hamlet here in the, in the film and the casting decisions made oh. uh, in arriving at these particular... I, I know, for instance, uh, um, you know... Um, Vivian Lee wanted to be Ophelia. She, she was um, Olivier's uh, wife she, at the time. She was his wife. Uh, and she did not get the role. Could you, could well, you talk about that? Well, she, Olivier is in his early 40s. I think he's 41 when he, when he, when he makes this movie. Uh, um, a real issue in casting, I know, was your Gertrude. How you, Gertrude has to be, for Olivier... She has to be 
Hamlet's mother, but she also has to be attractive and sexually attractive for this thing to work. Well, they got Hurley to do the role. She's actually younger than Olivier. Hurley is, at this time is in her early 30s. I think she's about 32. Uh, so she's eight, nine years younger than Olivier, but she was convincingly a little ageless and, and attractive and, and could make the spread. Now, Vivian Lee did want, uh, did want to do Ophelia. Vivian Lee was older than Hurley. I think she was 37 or 38 around the time they made this movie. So Ophelia would have been older than Gertrude <laughs> if Vivian Lee had done it. Uh, the, the, the Ophelia here is 16, <laughs> uh, so she's, uh, she's, she's, she's very young. And some of the, I mean, some of the, some of the actors he uses, like the uh, Horatio, uh, these, are, these are almost, for him, companion actors that right. he uses again and again uh, throughout things. He almost has a kind of an ensemble he returns to. Yeah, he yeah. does. Um, so we have this kind of double plot, right? We have the, the two families. The, and the second family here, um, you know, in, in a way, I think because of the cuts, uh, emerges even more strongly uh, uh, in some ways with uh, Polonius, who's, who uh, in this viewing I, I found hilarious. Uh, Polonius and Laertes and, um, and Ophelia. Um, again, changes made. Uh, Ophelia's story, especially around oh. the suicide, streamlined. Uh, yeah, but the, the, I, I, uh, I, I can't chart it all, but Olivier moves around scenes so that he, he makes the latter part of Ophelia's story, the coming in mad and the, uh, the drowning uh, with the flashback to the uh, the Victorian painting of the, the great Victorian painting of Ophelia uh, floating on the water. Now, uh, he Olivier reorganizes all of this so that it becomes more coherent than it is in the play. And uh, one of one of Olivier's goals in making the movie, he said it was his goal, is to make Hamlet come clear. Uh, he, he, wanted to, uh, he, he wanted to explain Hamlet to an audience. He wanted it to be a comprehensible rather than just a, a, a mysterious play. And the, the comprehensibility, of course, makes it re- also revolve around Hamlet and Gertrude. And speaking of moving scenes around, one of the most uh, famous moments of moving one uh, uh, scene you know, within the film is that to be or, famous to be or not to be. So. Oh. Um, which he gives us after Get yeah. Thee to a Nunnery. So it sort of follows on hard from this encounter yeah. uh, with, uh, with Ophelia. And can we talk about, I mean, what a weird moment. Uh, it's such a strange, I, I never quite know what to make of that moment when we seem to be sort of boring into Hamlet's brain. Yeah. Well, by putting it, it, it uh, the to be or not to be is a curious speech. Um, it's the most famous speech in the play. It's the most famous Shakespearean speech, probably. It's a set piece. Uh, we can talk about the to be or not to be speech. It's very, very interesting in, in, from many dimensions. Uh, I, the to be or not to be speech, uh, I, Olivier moves it in the 
in the, I'm, I'm hesitating saying in the play because we have several, ver- there are right. multiple versions of the play and actually the to be or not to be moves around amongst the other versions as well. But in the usual version of the play that, 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 that we know, for most of us, the to be or not to be speech comes you know, before Hamlet encounters uh, Ophelia and does what is often known as the nunnery speech, the get thee to a nunnery uh, scene, comes before. And it comes with Claudius and Polonius hiding behind an arras, observing Hamlet with Ophelia. And what Olivier has done is taken it out of that position, which is the canonical position, that, uh, that, it, that it has. And it, it, it's curious what it kind of means in that position. Um, in that position, my sense, uh, Hamlet speaks to be or not to be, that is the question, counters Ophelia. Claudius and Polonius are observing this behind the arras. The to be or not to be speech is conspicuously profound. (laughs) It is conspicuously profound. And kind of what it suggests is, here are these courtier observer spies, uh, Polonius and Claudius, hiding to figure out the heart of Hamlet's mystery, but Hamlet is deeper than, than they are. And so it's, it, uh, whatever else you make of the speech, it says, I am profound. Um, what Olivier does with it is he takes it away from that nunnery scene. Uh, I, if you remember in the movie, the way it works is Hamlet pushes Ophelia away. She falls on the, on, the, on the floor of the castle at the foot of the steps, weeping. He turns back to her. He looks at her sadly. Oh, what I have done to her. Uh, and then the camera, he goes up, and the camera goes up and up and up. Well, we get the little scene between uh, Polonius and, and Ophelia, you need not tell us what the Hamlet said. We heard it all. <laughs> and then the camera goes up and goes up those curving stairs up to the battlements. And now you're on the battlements uh, with Hamlet on the battlements. And there is Hamlet, melancholy, leaning over the battlements to be or not to be. And I... Uh, what Olivier does by moving it there is in part make it a reaction to the Ophelia scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, as if uh, uh, Hamlet is wounded deeply, deeply, deeply wounded by having wounded beautiful young Ophelia this way as he had to. Uh, for multiple reasons we are given to expect. For multiple reasons he had to. Uh, I, and then, of course, he, uh, in that, that wonderful lassitudinous bit, drops, dro- drops the dagger <laughs> all the way in. So just on the, along, uh, that, along that line, uh, the to be or not to be speech, one of the things people want to say about Hamlet is that 
uh, it's, you know, or one to think about in relation to Hamlet is how successful it is in sort of giving us the illusion of interiority, uh, right? So how does it manage this? You talked for a minute there about sort yeah. of it gives us deep Hamlet, profound Hamlet. How does it give us this sort of illusion of an inner self? Yeah, it, 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 uh, interiority is, is, is really a rhetorical matter. Mm-hmm. Certainly on the stage, it's a, it's a rhetorical matter. Uh, uh, an interesting thing about the to be or not to be speech, if you think of it, this is, this is the iconic deep thinking speech, deep personal speech, there's never a personal pronoun in it. There's no I, there's no me. It's all, it's all impersonal. Uh, um, it, 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 uh, sometimes when teaching it, I, I do a rhetorical schematic analysis of the speech. If you analyze it, you see that it is a logical rhetorical structure which explores almost in school text fashion two alternatives, to be or not to be. That's to say to live or to die, to be or not to be. That is the question. And then follows to be or not to be. That is the question whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune that's to say, to be, <laughs> or alternatively, we've, uh, you can chart it with two, two things going, or alternatively, to take arms against a sea of troubles and so doing end it. That's to commit suicide. Now, to commit suicide. Now, that idea of committing suicide, you'll get a, a little bifurcation. Uh, uh, to die, to sleep, no more. Uh, to die is to sleep no more, but maybe it's to dream. And now to die may be the end or not the end. So you get another logical split on the to die side. And this, but the whole speech uh, really is, I mean, it, it, it is a, the, the kind of exercise in, uh, in, in, logic and rhetoric that Shakespeare would have learned in school. And it works, because, because, both because it's brilliantly done, and what it says is, uh, its final message is, I, I am profound. <laughs> <laughs> so the set piece that can be moved around, that is filled with oh, sort of yeah. cliches and, 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 and yeah. sort of sententiae is what signals. Yeah. But it has a really important dramatic function in that, uh, I mean, it... it I am profound. I, I mean, I'm being cute and saying that I am profound. But if you go back to the kind of historical reading of Hamlet that I was trying to excavate a little bit, which is to say that it is a corrupt court, and this is there is a duel going on between Hamlet and Claudius, and this is a duel that is contrasting with the kind of open, heroic, chivalric duel of the past. Uh, It suggests Hamlet in this kind of mining mine beneath mine beneath mine, dueling with Claudius. Hamlet is a very dangerous antagonist. And that's, that's part of its 
dramatic function. And he is a dangerous antagonist. As he proves, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and on that note, uh, I think we should probably wrap it up. And can we give one final round of applause for Mark Rose? Sure. <laughs> and I will for <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.